a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. So welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romas with you. Today, we are going to talk about drug addiction and uh, one potential solution. Given the current state of the opioid epidemic, I thought the timing of this was uh, worked out pretty good. And for us to explore some out-of-the-box ideas, for this, I have inventor Neil Jackson on the show. Neil was diagnosed with chondrosarcoma in 2011. This is a form of cancer that affects the bones and joints of the body. Neil dealt with excruciating pain and was prescribed morphine and codeine-based drugs. He was then put on fentanyl, which was administered through transdermal patches. This led to a dependency. Neil invented Benblock, a prescription-based self-control device that blocks the flow of fentanyl from a patch. This was done to give people control and freedom to get off fentanyl using their own timeline and with their healthcare provider's support. So welcome, Neil. Thanks very much, Nathan. Nice to be here. Um, glad we could connect. You're, you're calling in from Virginia? That's correct? Yeah. I'm in the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, of uh, central Virginia. A little town called Forest, maybe, maybe 4,000 people. Oh, very nice. Um, I'm glad we could uh, get you on here, and um, I'm glad we could connect. I'm hoping this maybe kind of just helps people uh, explore some options because, I mean, there's many options to kind of battling this opioid epidemic. Um, So maybe this is one piece of a larger solution. So if we could kind of start at the beginning um, and tell us a little bit about yourself because you're not uh, an inventor by trade, I guess. You worked in finance and accounting. That's right. Well, I was in... uh... I started in finance and accounting when I was out of school, and then uh, I worked my way into technology mm. and uh, became an IT uh, specialist in auditing, security, and uh, governance rather than those things. And I've worked in a lot of you know small organizations, and then uh, my last uh, large job was with uh, the global director of uh, IT audit and security for E-Trade Financial. Okay. So I spent there and, and traveled the world to uh, you know, see what's going on in the trading markets and the platforms and things. But um, it really gave me a good uh, uh, base uh, as a risk avoidance type of person. Mm. You know, and I mean, that's what basically audit's based on is risk. And uh, so I saw myself in many, many cases, the, the mirror image of risk uh, when I was, uh, as you would say, dependent upon uh, uh opioids and and fentanyl was probably the most powerful and the most uh hungry it never it never stopped uh throwing out hunger pains and uh mm. the only time i can remember being in a euphoric state was at the be at the beginning within hours after i first woke up from surgery i was hitting the morphine button mm, okay and uh i was i was in la la land <laughs> but uh None of that ever came back uh, to me once I got me into oral uh, opioids. And so I spent uh, 11 months, uh, almost 11 months in the hospital uh, uh, in recovery. And uh, when I got home, I was just given a 
a huge dosage of drugs, uh, all opioid-based, with the exception of gabapentin, uh, which be- has in the, in the U.S. become a controlled substance. Uh, and uh, to give you an idea, I had 100 micrograms per hour flowing from fentanyl. I had 36 micrograms, yeah, 36, yeah, I guess 36 grams of, of uh, milligrams of uh, uh, chondros- or no, of hydromorphine mm-hmm. and hydrocodone, uh, and then 24 milligrams of uh, gabapentin at the end. And that's when I decided, you know, this is, this is really dangerous. It's, uh, mm. it's not good. So uh, it took me three months to figure out how to get off. Well, so one thing I kind of want to um, ask about is maybe at the beginning of your diagnosis is what what were kind of the options that they gave to you? So you find out you have this cancer. Um, do you kind of go through the the initial uh, like chemotherapy and, and different things to combat that? And then after all these uh, things happen, that's when you start getting put on the painkillers? Uh, in a way. Uh, chondrosarcoma is, uh, first of all, x-ray and MRI don't detect it. Hmm. It's very rare. Uh, it's, it's, uh, non-curable when you're told that you have it. Okay. There's no cure. Uh, the only cure is like, uh, you know, I'm, I can remember my mother's friends and stuff. If they had breast cancer, the only options they had were surgery. Mm-hmm. And that's where the status of chondrosarcoma. There's no uh, smart drug. There's no chemotherapy. Chemotherapy doesn't touch it. It won't, it won't do a thing to it. Uh, so, uh, when I got diagnosed, uh, I was told, you know, first of all, uh, it's a non-curable disease. Okay. So your chances uh, right at the gate are minimal best to live. Uh, I got, uh, connected with the world's best, uh, chondrosarcoma, uh, surgeon at Mass General. I went to Mayo Clinic, didn't like the guy. Mm. Went to Mass General. I really connected with a guy who was more entrepreneurial in spirit, younger. And I figured that the other gentleman over at Mayo was an engineer turned uh, physician turned surgeon. And I was really reluctant because if he found himself in a real problem, an engineer goes to a book. <laughs> yeah. So I, I sold this doctor and he didn't like it, but he told this doctor, I said, look, I want an entrepreneur that says, okay, I got a problem. I'm going to go right through it. You know, I'm going to find a solution. So anyhow, when we got to meet him, um, he told my wife and I that uh, his team of, of specialists at Mass General and Harvard would give me a one in a million chance of coming through surgery. Hmm. And he said, do you want to do it? And I said, yeah. I said, I, I'm not worried about it. So we got prepared, took me two months to have some preparations done, uh, in the hospital. And then, uh, we had surgery. Uh, first surgery was eight and a half hours. Second surgery, 23 hours. Wow. And, uh, and then we had subsequent more up to about 40 hours of surgery. Uh, but, uh, I was in, uh, intensive care with, uh, in a, in a forced coma, medical coma for about a week and a half to two weeks after surgery. Because it was it was it was drastic. I mean, it was a big big deal. Okay, mm-hmm. probably probably twenty some people in the operating room working on me. Wow. So it's yeah. So they they removed my uh, uh, my hip, my left hip, and my pelvis, my whole pelvis, and they replaced it. 
and and the base of my spine. It was all wrapped. It was eight and a half pounds of of cancer of this uh, what's called the soft tissues, mm -hmm. which becomes very hard. And they were able to get that out in one piece. It took them, uh, I think, fourteen hours of uh, of that part of the surgery to remove the the tumor. Then they started to kind of patch me up. It took them another you know number of hours to do that. Wow! Close me up. Yeah. Modern technology. Jeez. Yeah, I was glad. So as a result of the surgeries, that's when you uh, start going on to these, I'll call them yeah. painkillers, it's like a, a yeah. common vernacular. But um, so that's where you start getting on to these. Do you, when you go through that process, do you have a choice of uh, anything that you're on or any sort of, I don't know, other options? Or is it just, this is what you need and you get that? Oh, yeah. There's no choice. In fact, at that point, I'm not saying everybody's possibly like me, but... I had no idea, okay, that that the uh, the cost of this would be uh, significant uh, pain, okay. Mm. But I was I would be a chronic pain patient the rest of my life uh, at the time that, of surgery, and that they had plenty of good drugs that were effective to people in their nineties, and uh, basically don't worry about it. You know, you're you're going to be fine. You know, you'll live a you'll live a good life. Yeah. Uh, but what I you know, what I learned later the destructive courses that uh, fentanyl do again does against your your heart your lungs your brain your eyes uh, all those kind of things uh, you know it's floating around your body and and uh, it, it stores itself places where you don't think like your heart your all your muscles are storing uh, opioids all the time if you've got them mm. and uh, it's a it's a vicious game really really vicious and is that even so this is even under prescription the doctor's telling you how to take this or how much to take, uh, it still has that kind of an effect on your body. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's, the effect is that uh, you, you don't feel the pain. You know, that's gone. That's gone. I never had a real problem of cognitive value. that never affected that. You know, mm -hmm. it, it made me tremendous mood swings. I had migraine headaches. I had severe nausea. And I had at least once a month, severe depression where at any point life was of absolutely no use. Wow. So, yeah. So I could say that somebody that has is near uh, suicidal, I was there. Uh, and I didn't have the, I didn't have the courage to go the other way. I didn't have the courage to go through with it, mm -hmm. but I knew I knew sitting there that, uh, uh, I wasn't worth a damn. Okay. It's not that you think that, uh, these drugs make you know that. And so if you don't have a strong family, you don't have a, a, a real uh, center point of belief in Christ mm. and have a good God pass, you know, setting the path in front of you and your faith that you'll be able to execute that path. Um, I feel I feel like these people, uh, you know, uh, it takes a little bit of courage to uh, to end your life. Yeah. And I didn't have it. Goodness, I didn't. Well, and one thing I was wondering too, when uh, we had our prior conversation just before doing the recording stuff, was when you first start getting these medications, uh, was it a particular one that almost gets you hooked? Did you do you have like that sense of knowing, mm -hmm. you know, this has kind of got me now? Uh, and was it only the fentanyl that did that, or was it some of the ones leading up to it? Well, uh, you do have that feeling because uh, 
you ask for drugs when you're in a hospital more often than they're willing to administer drugs for pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know something's out of, out of sequence, you know? you got a doctor that knows your condition, and yet when you ask for a painkiller, uh, they say, well, we'll have to get the doctor's permission. And I'd say, well, there's something wrong here. He's already must have prescribed this. Just give me the damn painkiller, you know? Uh, And that starts to get uh, a wider uh, uh, disconnect. And uh, you you find that this drug just demands more and more and more. And there's there's no way you could say I could put my finger on that. However, in, in... Looking back, I've learned that addiction to these drugs starts in two weeks yeah. of use. Yeah. So once you're into it, two to three weeks, uh, it's going to be it's going to be up to you to measure when you can get off and get off just as soon as you possibly can. Well, when you're dealing with the doctors, like do they, you know, they're measuring your or asking about your pain levels and stuff. Are they ever? Do they ever ask at any point like? Hey, do you feel like uh, you can't live without this drug, or that you're becoming uh, dependent, addicted, or whatever other level there might be in there? Yeah, there's a in the U.S. Uh, we're always dealing with the dr- drug enforcement agencies, mm. and so the doctors, when they prescribe opioids, they're required to uh, document, you know, and justify why this person's on opioids and. And to the degree that I was on opioids, I told you how many of them Mm -hmm. uh, and the quantity, uh, I was probably taking more prescribed opioids, my doctor told me, than any other patient in Virginia. Wow. So I had the attention of the FDA and my doctor. So he would always be a debater as to arguing with me as to, uh, you know, I'm not going to give you more. Yeah. He never asked me, he asked me about tapering off. Yeah. Because he always, I was coming in with a complaint, boy, I can, you know, this is just not lasting long enough. And, uh, you know, he never thought about, I really don't think he thought about that, of saying, hey, Neil, you need to, you, we need to get you starting to taper off to get this um, uh, compassionate or this, yeah, compassionate feeling that you need more drugs, or get that to, to uh, dissipate it in some way or another. Uh, never did that because I don't think, uh, a medical doctor at this at this particular point where I was uh, in time uh, had that type of uh, practical uh, uh, instruction. I mean, he was dealing with me based on what he could probably learn in medical journals or uh, online, uh, and and because I was very I was very unique. Okay, okay, I was I know I was told I was the most complicated patient in the state. A number of times mm. because they, the, the doctors that were following me, they couldn't understand how I could be living. Well, did, do you know what your, your dosage was compared to what, say, a, a person on the street might use? Uh, I would say three times as much. Wow. Yeah. Did, so you're saying that the doctor, basically, they have to kind of answer to some sort of oversight body. Does the DEA or uh, you said the other one was the FDA? Um, well, just it's a DEA. DEA, okay. A drug enforcement agency of the federal government. So at some point, they can actually step in and say, uh, you're giving this person too much or whatever the case may be? Yeah, they can take his license away. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, I've never had a chance to talk to somebody that's um, 
had addiction to anything. But what I'm wondering is when, when you first start getting to that point, what does it feel like? How would you describe it? Um, well, you've, you've come to a sense that at that point you're normal. Mm. All right. It's the other people around you that you need to reach out and say, you know, what does that look like? You know, what does normal to me look like to you? All right. Yeah. And my wife would say, I think you're doing fine. And, uh, but my children who wouldn't see me quite as often would notice changes. Okay. So, you know, my wife would become accustomed because that's me. We're together. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but when I'm in once a week or once every two weeks or something, they'd notice, they'd notice a difference. They know, they noticed something, you know, something was, you know, basically not normal. And, uh, but it wasn't anything of any severe consequence. I think what they felt was my, uh, mood swings, my anger curves were really off the charts. You know, I was intolerable of my grandkids, you know, kind of playing in, in, in our, in our home. Yeah. Uh, at times my wife was having fun with them. I would be, I would be sitting here, you know, pent up with, I think some sort of anxiety, uh, maybe jealousy because, you know, he's not playing with me. but out and, and and basically unwarranted anger and i noticed that i mean i i didn't know what to do about that i i, I thought that that was uh once i learned how bad i was in the addiction side then i knew that that was uh, uh something that i believed that if i got off the drugs i would monitor in, in some sort of a diary and stuff and 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 it did it it was a measurable uh positive action of getting off as i could measure uh, by asking my family and friends about my attitude uh, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I was able to say that everybody in the first 60 days, the 90 days of me trying to taper off, we're talking to te- saying to me, you're, 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 you're doing better. Yeah. Yeah. People kind of notice that immediate change. Uh, w- one thing too that I was wondering is by the time you're kind of hooked on something, um, like you initially start taking these the fentanyl for pain killing. And by the time you're hooked on it, is it still, you're mainly looking for it uh, for the, the purpose of getting rid of pain or does it completely switch to, I'm looking for like that euphoric state? No, you don't get the euphoric state. Mm. Uh, at least I, uh, because I was tolerant of it. Okay. Mm, okay. I was dependent upon it. Uh, but uh, what kept you, keeps you in, involved in it is the unknown of the residual pain that if I drop the, uh, the volume of, of opioids, uh, medication in general, uh, what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I did, I did some studying about, you know, the, uh, uh, regrowth of, of nerves and things like that from surgeries. And they, they basically heal, you know, like an inch, uh, a year. Mm. Okay. They'll hear up about an inch a year so now i'm sitting at seven years okay when this all starts to occur when i want to get off and i figured well it's worth a try yeah you know uh by tapering off in a graduated way all right on my own timeline and making if i needed to i could make adjustments i could take two steps back take another step forward uh if i felt like i was tapering too fast if my if my diary or my feelings each morning mm-hmm. uh, told me something 
was askew, I would make a change. But I, I didn't do that, but maybe twice. Uh, and then throughout that time, residual pain was not recordable. I had none. Hmm. Once in a while, I would have, as I had surgery and I had a leg removed, um, I would have phantom pain. Okay. And uh, I had never had that with the opioids. Okay. So I figured I knew what that was, but my, my cure for that was just Motrin. Oh, really? And I did yeah, Motrin and it went away. So I, I routinely have uh, phantom pains, maybe, you know, three, four times a year. And uh, it, it'll take uh, just, you know, take Motrin to, uh, to take it away or Tylenol. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll rotate from one or the other. But no, no other drugs. I don't take anything except Motrin or Tylenol. So um, we'll kind of get into toward the, uh, talking about this Fen block. Uh, what led you to make the change necessary to kind of like develop this product? But also, was there was there stigma to receiving help? Okay, we'll go to the first part first, which is probably the most enjoyable mm-hmm. since I'm talking to hopefully talking to a Canadian audience. Uh, it was in August of uh, 2017, and uh, I'm at home by myself, and my wife's working, and so I turned on our TV, and for some reason, I went to C-SPAN, and uh, C-SPAN was uh, filming a, uh, uh, a presentation in the Rose Garden of the White House. President Trump had just been, you know, put in office that or that earlier that year mm-hmm. his brother died of an addiction to alcohol so unbeknownst to me it, one of his first executive orders was to set up a study of the opioid and, ep- and other epidemics across the nation and he wanted to have solutions so the governor uh, chris christie from new jersey headed that study and he was given a report so i immediately went and downloaded the report and uh, uh they were telling the audience of how deadly uh, this opioid epidemic was to the individuals that are encountering it. And I called my wife during the presentation. I said, I told her what was going on. And I said, those bastards are talking to me. Mm-hmm. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to get off. And she said, how are you going to do that? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to get off. So that's that's the answer to you first. It, was, it took me three months to study uh, my risk, my implications, you know, trying to get a, a baseline as to where I am uh, against whoever I could pattern myself with. I found no, nothing. I looked and says, what are my options to get off? My options were alternative medication, okay, that would somehow uh, uh, cover the, uh, uh, the pain, but without an opioid. And my thought was, well, if I'm going to get off opioids, why would I want to become dependent on an alternative drug? Yeah. At what point do I want to get off of that? So it's either, you know, you, you got to do it, okay? Or, or you just just give up. Yeah. So uh, other option was uh, uh, rehabilitative services. When I investigated that and talked to several rehab centers around Virginia, I learned that they were mine would be, you know, an in-house uh, patient. For about 30 days and they said i would come out fine you know and uh the cost was it was pretty high it was about eight thousand a month 
and to find out across the country it can go as high as eighty thousand. So you know, I'm pretty much in a in a in an area that you could say was affordable, but not to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I uh, I said, you know, I, plus the other thing, I don't want to give up control. I'd been in a hospital for eleven months where if I I'd called you know Doctor Nate and I say, hey, I got pain, you know, send me some more, you know, drugs, right? Yeah. So you over a period of an hour, you you would decide whether I get them or not, and I didn't want that again. So, uh, you know, it's either, it's either make a decision and get off or, or just placate this situation and, and, uh, uh, go under somebody else's rule. So that was my instigation to, uh, to do it myself. And I had pills, I had oral opioids, a ton of those. We went through that 36 milligrams of hydromorphine, hydrocoding, and that was easy. I took a pen knife and chipped those away mm-hmm. in six months. I was. I was off of oral opioids. Uh, my next task was uh, the fentanyl patch. You can't bend the fentanyl patch. It's non-effective. It won't stick on your body anymore. It won't transdermally flow. You can't cut it because it'll drain out of the bottom. And uh, so what do you do? Mm-hmm. And at that time, I'm a working artist. Uh, and I looked over at my art easel and I saw artist tape. It was real thin. So I said, well, I'll see if that'll block some of the flow of that drug. So I put it on between my chest and, and the patch, put the patch over it. And uh, 72 hours later, took the patch off and the, 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 uh, the tape was just eaten up with the fentanyl drug. It, it, it had just destroyed it. Wow. So uh, uh, I said, well, that's not good. So anyhow, I, I played around. I found a material that was non-transdermal. Uh, and uh, I uh, sized it up to equal 10%, 15%, 20% patch barriers and put those between my chest and my patch. And I began to uh, graduate the tapering of myself off the drugs over the next uh, 14 months. Okay. So it was, it was a great experience. Um, I had a friend who owned a, an engineering company. We were in his driveway talking, and he said, show me what you're doing. And I told him, and he said, that's a patentable idea. So that's how we got to talk to you, because uh, I w- would have never known by anybody if I hadn't patented this mess, you know. Mm-hmm. But that took a year. We won three patents. We have, uh, you know, both the, uh, uh, the use patent, the utility patent, and uh, uh, whatever you call it, the, the real patent, material, whatever it is, you know, utility and use patents. And uh, so we got... Three separate uh, patents with both covered. Uh, we're good for ne- micro needles uh, to any type of, of uh, drug patch that goes transdermal, and it it, it worked. And uh, so, uh, two years ago, uh, I met with uh, uh, had a phone call from uh, Francis Collins, who was in charge of National Institute of Health, and in his words, on the phone with me, said, "I've never." Uh, received or heard of a uh, a solution to a national epidemic until you. Mm. And he said, I'm going to transfer you over to my deputy director at National Institute of Drug Abuse. And his instructions are to, to mentor you to get the drug or to get the device patented, protected, and into a clinical uh, testing facility in one of our university hospitals. So uh, that took place, and then we're 
ready to go for clinicals. We had a budget of three and a half million in grants ready to go. And COVID comes along, mm. shuts it all down. Yeah. So we, yeah, we spent 10 years or two years, you know, fiddling our thumbs. Uh, at least they were, they were going on to other, other uh, research and clinical tests, but mine was waiting on the funding for the, for the grant. And that was stopped. So I went on my own. I went private on it. And so I've spent a ton of money uh, getting up with all the resources uh, that will do the work, do the clinics, do the, the approvals and things like that to, uh, to get this on the marketplace in the, in the very near future. Wow. That's an amazing story. The, and one thing that uh, my audience might be a little more uh, in tune with is the, the street use of drugs. Yeah. So among the homeless population, or you have um, younger generation trying, you know, getting into harder and harder drugs. Yeah. So one thing I want to try and make a connection between is, can this patch be used, or this this type of solution is? Are you looking at um, having this as a solution for people that might be using street drugs? Absolutely, absolutely. That's a you know you come up with your initial version of a product or, you know, uh, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. you always have your, uh, enhanced version, you know, either on the drawing tables or, uh, uh in, into research. And, and this is in, was in research and development and, uh, it's all ready to go. Okay. Again, it's got to go through the approval process because it's dealing with narcotics at that point, you mm -hmm. know, and, and, but one of the things that interested me in Canada is that you've got, uh, government that's uh you know licensing the production of some of these uh these drugs and you're they're doing that without what i would say an exit point and another thing i i've heard is a, a an off ramp you know mm -hmm. we're we're try trying to placate a section of po of the population that we really don't know what to do with all right but and, but and they call it a harm reduction program when in fact yeah, maybe you're thinking that you're you're reducing the ability of harm to that individual by keeping them on a particular drug, but you're actually killing them. Mm -hmm. And what what we want to be able to do, and that's what Fenblock 2.0 will will open up the market for, is uh, we've got an off ramp, and it's safe, and it works. And if it works for fentanyl, man, the same principles, the same technology, the the bar give the give the person a prescribed uh volume of say cocaine or meth in the patch and then use the technology of the barrier of the fen block barrier system yeah. to make you know to, to progressively but gradually get you off of that drug and then you go back to your 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 uh provider practitioner your health practitioner and they're the manager at that point they're not a coach i mean these are people that need management they need they need strict rules so they go back there and, and there's controls in place that, uh, you know, we know that you're not abusing the situation. You're not cutting that patch and, 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 you know, taking that drug and selling it. Uh, we know we, we have the controls that are all ready to go that will answer those, uh, those questions of, of, uh, your government. So, you know, the United States has a real, real problem. All right. But we're not yet there to prescribing the replacement of uh, what we, you know, you and I would say street drugs, and some people would say narcotics. Mm -hmm. And yet, Canada and a lot of countries around the world are doing that. So that's my first objective. My, my objective is to save lives. I don't care where they're at. 
But I think the ones in most need are those where the governments are more progressive in trying to resolve a problem by pretty much, uh, you know, covering it up. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's a, that's not a, I'm not trying to be complaining of this. I think that they just don't know that there's a solution available. And now we have a solution. And my solution is going to come up with people with other ideas, which is great. You know? Yeah. My solution is unique. It's a novel solution. It's called a de novo in the FDA. They look at it because there's nothing like it. There's just nothing like this. And they've never seen it before. Okay. So uh, that doesn't mean somebody else doesn't have a better idea. Right. Well, and it's just like you're saying, you know, this is, there's version 2.0, there could be version five, you know, once you get down the road and somebody's got to start it, somebody's got to come up with an, uh, an idea at some point and at least get the ball rolling. And then, you know, you turn it into whatever it needs to be. If yours is more pertaining to say people in, um, even if it was just solely focused on people that were in a hospital for uh, incurable cancer. That's right. But we see, we see all the time somebody invents something uh, in the middle of the wars and then all of a sudden it's used down the road 20 years later for some completely different purpose. You know, they take a piece of that idea and make it work over here in this other area. Right. I think that's what we're kind of getting at when we're talking about this. One of the good things about this is it's, it's, it's benefits to society. You know, you're going to have less visits to the emergency room. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's going to lower cost. That's going to lower cost of government uh, subsidies of, of uh, emergency room services. Okay. And insurance costs, you know, uh, you're going to have uh, a person who's returning to some state of normalcy, you know, the, so the family relationships, uh, their job relationships can recover. Yeah. You can recapture your freedom, you know, from addiction. And so uh, there's no downside to this. The downside is that we, you know, until this product, Fenbach, was put out, um, I hadn't thought about the term, you know, off-ramp. I've always thought of an exit point, you know, what's your exit point? Well, you know, I, I didn't know one. I had to come up with one. Well, I've got one that works. Yeah. I'm, I'm living proof of, you know, and there was no withdrawal. Yeah. None. No withdrawal. Uh, heart rates became stable. If I had not done this before COVID, my heart rate was so slow, my breathing was so slow, that an infection would have definitely killed me as if I was obese, you know, an obese individual with uh, diabetes. Wow. I mean, I wouldn't have been able But the fact that this was timed the way it was, hey, it's fantastic. Well, things all happen for a reason, I guess. Hope so. So... Uh, one thing I want to ask too about was the, uh, we talked a little bit about this before, was uh, any issues with pharmaceutical companies or people, because everybody wants to uh, talk about them nowadays, especially, but did you have any issues with either uh, patenting, patenting the product or get blocked by anybody else in any way? No, no. And in fact, Several patents that we were up up for review, my, my patent lawyers looked at, had to do with medical devices, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and the components uh, of some similarity to what I was looking at, okay? Uh, and, and you have to understand, these large pharmaceuticals, they have uh, just droves of people uh, examining the, uh, the patent office. So mm-hmm. whenever your patent, is released 
and, and you're you're authorized to have this patent, uh, the pharmaceuticals are on it that same day. Okay, so we haven't heard, we haven't seen any challenge to it at all. Uh, pharmaceuticals uh, in the United States uh, are in the process, are in the production of of fentanyl. They're in production of opioids, um, and it's a protected, it's a protected uh, uh, clientele. But if you get in a country like Canada, where it's more progressive, and in a way that's better for this product's uh, uh, availability, because. Uh, You've gotten to a degree where you recognize uh, not only is addiction a problem, but you're trying to solve it. And we can help as you solve that problem, also help those people who want to taper off can taper off in a managed way. Okay. Yeah. The ones that taper off are the ones we're going to save. There's a group of people, about 60% of those that are left, uh, if they knew there was a good viable option, they would, they would jump. They would take it, take it. But the fact that they're they're not aware of a Fenblock, okay, system, uh, they're only aware of alternative drugs or or rehabilitative services, which are very expensive, and the recidivism rates are in the eighty percent and above. Uh, they're less likely to think that they're worthy of taking that chance, okay. Mm-hmm. Where my my is going to be reasonably priced, uh, and and more than likely. Uh, once you know the approval process goes, it'll be picked up by insurance, and and if it's not, we're, we'll have a way of helping the people who can't afford it get it. Okay, yeah. So uh, we're looking, at whole, we're looking at the whole world out there. Amazing stuff. Uh, so where where is everything as it stands right now? So kind of are we ninety percent of the way? Are we still waiting for certain things to happen? So where are you? Seventy percent. Okay. 70, but, but it's a long, it's a long 70. Yeah. You know, uh, I would say that when I first sat down about, uh, two years ago to really work hard on this, um, after I had ended my addiction, um, I was saying, boy, this will be readily available probably within a year. You know, uh, I was ignorant of the necessary steps for, clinicals and things like that and once i got into that we're looking at two to three years well i've been in the in the uh private side of this going through and uh, aligning myself with the with the uh, uh organizations and companies and things like clinics and stuff that we can do this privately in an expeditious way rather than going through uh state institutions which are good but they are you know they're they're dependent upon their their grants. Mm-hmm. Their grants are the federal grant goes through the state to the state university hospital practicing centers, and so there's two governments involved in how that money's to be distributed, and it just slows the whole pace down. Yeah. Nathan, it, it just really does. So I'm looking at uh, two different avenues. Um, I've also I'm also working with the Virginia uh, Department of Economic uh, Development international group who uh, is in, are in the process of setting up uh, uh, connections into your government, into governments around the world that we'll be traveling to. And and so with their support, because they've seen this, mm-hmm. uh, with their support, uh, our Virginia uh, Commonwealth attorney, uh, will uh, attorney general, uh, he will uh, uh, be meeting with us shortly. He's asked to meet us 
and go through this. And then the international uh, economic development people will be there with us. And so, you know, we're way ahead of where we thought we'd be, uh, but we're not yet ready to, to for market. And, but that's, that's okay. There's a lot of people that uh, I think once we get this available, they'll readily volunteer uh, to test it and, and, and find remarkable results. And one thing I can tell you that in Richmond, Virginia, there's a, there's a hospital, that, a cancer hospital, that is just absolutely interested in this. They called the, the uh, clinical evaluation uh, addiction science group mm-hmm. at that university who I was going to have my product tested through and asked if they had this product available for, for them yet. So we're, we, there's a huge need, especially in cancer center, the, for something like this. And that's outside of addiction. You know, They just know that these people have taken the drugs too long and they want to get them off. So right now, um, you're the only test subject there's been and you're kind of moving toward actually testing this in, the, like in real life settings. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I think that we just have to find, uh, you know, that uh, uh, path, and uh, so we're we think that we can meet the path requirements of the Canadian governments. You know, either in the French provinces or in the English provinces. Mm. Uh, we don't have any hesitation to do that. Are again the development group from Virginia who are well versed in this product and and other products like this uh, do this all the time and they're they're jumping at the you know the, the edges to 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 get in there with us and and make the right connections in in your country and then in several other countries around the world where there's notable problems and they're looking for this solution. So well, that sounds yeah. like you're you're well on your way and you're doing really good with this. Um, I want to ask, uh, just as we're kind of coming up toward the end of our, our time, but how are you doing now? And has there been any recidivism at all? No recidivism at all. No, no, even an inkling of wanting it. And, and to give you an example, I, I kept all my patches that I didn't use sitting next to my bed. And my wife would say, why do you do that? I said, just to remind me of where I've been. And it was, uh, everybody was saying, that would be a temptation. Well, the funny thing was, no, it just gave me a reward. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you know, I was taking 20, 30 pills a day. Wow. And then I was putting a patch. Sometimes I put two patches on because I knew that I needed more. And I, as a, as a a drug user, you hoard for, for a rainy day. Okay. So I was able to manipulate the prescription side of it. I found out the drugstores told me that the insurance company would allow me to get that renewed three days before the renewal day. So you take three days over seven years yeah. and you're getting a lot, getting a lot of patches, a lot of pills and you don't need them. Yeah. So I put, I had hundreds of hydromorphin and hydrocodeine pills and I had 50 uh, fentanyl patches. Wow. 50. And, and so that's got to change. Yeah. You know, the practice of how the issuance of these has got to change. The insurance companies are getting ripped and they're, you're putting more, more uh, valuable, you know, drugs on the street. And we got, we can stop that. Well, and that's how we get into people selling their drugs on the street, right? Yeah. You can just keep getting the refills. Yeah. I got a bag of, of those pills and they're worth $10 a piece. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. We have the same issues up here. Yeah. Yeah. So now you got to change. Now we're going to give you a, an off ramp. You know, we're going to we're going to give not just you and your your country, uh, which is you know our favorite country too, right? Mm. So we're going to give us all an off ramp. We're going to give us an opportunity to to uh, bring sense, common sense back into this. You know, and and I think that uh, when we straighten out family lives and we save people's from uh, from committing suicide or feeling depressed and you know just abusing the drug, and it's not only on their behalf. It, they they find themselves just habitly being in a habit of abusing the drug. Yeah. So why you go back on stigma? I look at stigma when I look at it as a political term. Uh, I don't see it as a as a as anything negative to me. I think if I came out of it with the words action, 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 off ramp, mm-hmm. you know, uh, end point, exit point, you know, and then fen block, and then the other words I use is a reality check. Yeah. So we can bring all the back to positive things and we can tell people there's no if you feel like there's a stigma be proud of it mm-hmm. you're not you're not there yourself you're there because of other circumstances that put you there and it's time to take a reality check great words i think that's um i, I think we get a good point across here and show a connection that uh there's the stuff that's used medically which leads into some of the street drugs um hopefully somebody can listen to this and kind of take a piece of it uh, away and come up with further solutions or get a hold of you, which I'm going to give you a chance to do here. Uh, how can people follow you and your work? Well, let me say one thing. If we can, yeah. You can slice this, but I was a week away from going to the street. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would have been on street drugs if I had not quit. Yeah. That was one of my calls. So if somebody's listening and he says, well, that guy never got near the street. I was one week away. I'd call my friend who was a pharmacist and I asked him, I said, where can I get this if my doctor stops prescribing it? He said, there's tons of doctors right around your house that'll prescribe without ever seeing it. And I said, well, how about street drugs? He wow. says, they're all over the place, Neil. Yeah. So that really was a wake up call to me that I better get off. I'm in, I'm in real da- dangerous territory. Uh, how they can get in touch with us is our website is uh, Fenblock, F-E-N. B-L-O-C-K-M-E-D, like medicine, M-E-D.com, fenblockmed.com. Uh, all my contact information is there. Phone number is uh, 434-509-2999 in the United States. I'll, uh, and I put those links up uh, on the episode description when it gets posted too, so people can find you and find the website uh, if they got further questions or uh, can help you in any way. Um, yeah, I think that kind of wraps everything up that we were going to get to. Um, can you hang on the line for just a minute? I'll say by offline. But uh, while we're here, I just want to say thanks again for coming on. And um, I think you kind of shed some light on s- some major issues that we do have out here. And it's both Canada and America share a lot of the similar uh, issues. So we're glad you could kind of come on and talk about some of them. Yeah, I am too, because a lot of times you just get people that are in authority and in service situations and not practicing addicts, okay? Yeah. And now you're a real addict, okay? I, I've recovered from it. You know, I still have a family. Uh, my All my health systems are perfectly good. I'm 74 years old, and I live through it. And so they can too, and, and our prayers are with them. And, and we're here for the right reason. We have a mission to save lives. We're faith-based. And, and everybody can trust what we say. Great. 
I will. Awesome. Well, thank you. Hang on the line for just uh, one second. All right. Bye. Thanks.